Applied learning at the graduate level generally takes a form of traditional research projects, but other models can be successful. In this episode, we'll explore how service learning can challenge graduate students academically while building the capacity of an organization or department to take on a project or tackle a problem. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Lindley Melham, the director of the International Teaching Assistant Program at Texas Tech University. Her background is in applied linguistics and teaching English as a second language. Welcome, Lindley. Thank you so much for having me. Today, our teas are... I am drinking a beverage that starts with tea, but it's Turkish coffee. All right. Okay. I like how you answered that. I'm <laughs> so, with you. That works. <laughs> yeah, I, know a, I know it's important. I know it's been an issue on your podcast in the past. So I tried to meet you halfway. <laughs> We appreciate it. So your tea, Rebecca. My tea today is Paris tea. My tea is pomegranate green tea. Mm. Although the Turkish coffee does sound good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's delicious. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about the master's level applied linguistics course that you co-teach? Yes. This semester at Texas Tech, we are offering a course called Technology and Teaching Second Languages. We have a group of about 15 master's level applied linguistics students that are taking this course. And the applied linguistics program focuses on developing pedagogical skills for teaching a second or a foreign language. And this course specifically is looking at how we can integrate technology into that process. The course has been offered for some time, but this is the first semester that we've offered it as a service learning course. And the course has always had some type of applied component and probably would have satisfied the service learning requirements even beforehand, but we've just officially transitioned it into that phase. And basically what we have going on in the course is these graduate students working in teams And each of them have been assigned to a faculty member in our department who teaches a lower level foreign language course. And they are helping develop some online tools and materials with those faculty members to help them transition those lower level foreign language courses into a hybrid model. As our graduate students are learning about how to use computer assisted language learning, They're directly applying that to projects with faculty in our department. Were the faculty originally teaching face-to-face classes or online classes, the classes that are being converted to the hybrid format? Yes, those classes have traditionally been fully face-to-face. And in the next year or so, we're looking at moving them to a hybrid model. Most of those classes are five-hour courses, meeting daily, five days a week. And we're looking at transitioning to three hours face-to-face a week and then two hours online. What prompted the change to a hybrid format? Well, I think like many institutions, the administration is the first to see, hey, we think there may be some benefit here, not only to making these courses more flexible for students, but also there are some other administrative advantages just logistically to that model. 
these courses can be really effective and students often have a very positive experience with them. So in this case, the administration is encouraging all of these basic level language courses to be moved to that format. There was a major study not too long ago that indicated that hybrid classes outperform both face-to-face and online classes. We can include a link to that in the show notes. I'm honestly new to this as well. I'm just learning more and more about the benefits of these types of courses and some of the amazing advantages that they offer, especially in the language learning environment. And I think that lots of language teachers specifically are resistant to this type of learning because they feel that while all learning, I think for many teachers, feels deeply relational, language learning especially feels very relational, that you're creating a culture in your classroom, that you're oftentimes your students' only connection to the sociolinguistic world that you're introducing them to. And so there's a lot of hesitation to remove any of that face-to-face time. And there's an amazing body of literature that shows that there is a lot we can do that's highly effective in an online platform. What are some of the changes that are being implemented in the hybrid format? It will look a little bit different for every language in our case, because it depends a little bit on the text that different languages are using. So for instance, in the Spanish classroom, where they have already been using hybrid courses for some time at our institution, there is a wealth of options in terms of materials that publishers make available to instructors. Whereas in some other languages, like in Arabic, there are not quite so many materials available. So exactly what those changes look like will be slightly different for each language. And of course, there's some choice there for each instructor about exactly what they want to do. But we're looking at making sure that our instructors are comfortable implementing a flipped model for these hybrid courses so that students are coming into class, having already reviewed material that they can use in communicative activities in that face-to-face environment. And I think that's what's really exciting about a second language classroom or a foreign language classroom that we are always looking to increase the interactivity between students. So when we have the majority of rote learning that is necessary for vocabulary building and things like that, when that's taking place outside of the classroom, we can preserve a culture or a feel in the classroom that's highly interactive from the first minute to the last every time students show up in that face-to-face environment. What type of assistance are your students providing to those instructors? Some of the content in the course that they're taking is introducing them to specific technology mediums that may be useful for language teaching and language learning. And then they are also working directly with the instructional designers that are available to all faculty in our e-learning program. That's sort of a unique component that some of what they're doing is just introducing faculty to resources that already existed for them, but that faculty weren't sure how to access or maybe they felt they didn't have time to work with those instructional designers. So some of what our students are doing in this class, they're sitting down with faculty and the lingo that we're using in this environment is that these teams of students are working with a client. So they're referring to their community partner, who is a faculty member, as a client. So they sit down with their client and they say, what are your concerns about moving to a hybrid model? What do you feel like you can do? What do you feel like you can't do? What would you like to see accomplished by the end of this semester? And each of those projects looks slightly different, which is really exciting and lots of fun, but also certainly challenging because there are lots of different things in the work. But these students are meeting with those instructional designers. And then in many of the courses, what they're doing for the faculty is saying, okay, let me take your existing syllabus 
and let's transition this into modules that could be used in a hybrid course. And let's figure out what aspects of your content could be moved to an online format and what needs to stay face-to-face. Can you give a couple of examples of some specific things that those students are doing or the specific deliverables for reference? Yes. For instance, our students right now, they actually have a case study that's due on Saturday. So I'm looking forward to reading those in full, but I've just started to look over some of them. So the chapter that they read in their textbook was about listening comprehension. And some of what they worked on were designing listening comprehension activities using some sort of computer-assisted language learning technology. So, for instance, I believe the students that was working on an Arabic course, they were taking some content that was based around learning terminology related to the weather. And so they took a video that was available online that was a weather forecast in Arabic. And so they developed audio recordings of the instructor who is describing this terminology in Arabic so that the students can get an ear for it in a simplified format before they then went and listened to an authentic weather forecast. So material created for native Arabic speakers, not necessarily for Arabic learners. And then the students designed a quiz where the language learning students would be asked to identify which of the vocabulary that they had already learned was present in that weather forecast. So this would be a listening activity where they were listening for vocabulary that they had already learned the meaning of in an authentic setting. So that would be an example of an activity that an instructor could have students complete before they come to class where they did something interactive talking about the weather. They would first maybe do a listening activity like that online. I could see how valuable it is to have these master's level students helping fill some of those gaps for your faculty just because it takes a long time to sift through the materials, find good examples so they have those good authentic experiences. Has that eased the transition for some of the faculty who might have been apprehensive about moving to a hybrid format? Does the support that your grad students are providing make it a bit easier for them? I think it has. I think also because faculty many times feel, oh, just by the nature of being a little bit older than graduate students or even the students that I'm teaching, I'm inherently at a disadvantage. I'm not familiar with this type of technology. But we know that actually graduate students and many undergraduate students, even if they're interacting with technology on a regular basis, they may not be so savvy for using it for educational purposes. So I think even that, lowering that barrier a little bit to show that actually these graduate students are having to learn how to use this technology as well. So it can be done. So just watching someone else learn in front of them makes the whole thing a little bit more approachable. And then certainly having some support, even just in someone else saying, hey, I'm already dedicating some time. So I've developed a few activities And I think oftentimes instructors see that kind of gets the wheels turning for them and they say, well, I can do that. That's not that complicated. And I could replicate the same style of activity for a number of content areas. And so it makes the whole process much more approachable. Sounds like a really sneaky way to do professional development to me. Yeah, that's a really exciting thing. And that is one of the great benefits of service learning in general is that our graduate students are developing some wonderful skills in working with a client. So they are essentially materials designers for a client and they are required to communicate with the client to organize their schedules and coordinate time. And one of the first things that we did in class was even talk about how to have a meeting with someone and how to deal with faculty that may have a lot of resistance to developing these types of materials or have great concern and even some professional communication techniques about how to approach those meetings. So there are 
so many wonderful things happening at the same time. Sounds really great. It also sounds like there's a lot of moving parts. Having taught classes where there's a lot of clients in the past, I know that that can be really complicated to manage and oversee. Do you have some strategies that you're using to help everyone stay organized and to keep yourself organized? What's your role in this project? Yes. So as I mentioned, this is the first time that we're offering the course in exactly this format. So you're hearing a very live perspective on how we're figuring out how to manage this. But one advantage of the course is that I am co-teaching this course with Dr. Stephanie Bors, and she has taught this course for years and has had great success with a number of different practical projects that they've taken on. I have been working on developing service learning courses in our department, so that's how I became involved when we decided to move it to a full service learning model. And the advantage is that because there are two of us that we can manage some of these projects, there are a lot of moving parts. We also probably would not have had so many students. We have 15 students in this course. We probably would not have taken on so many if there weren't two of us. But in this way, we can serve a greater number of faculty members. But I think one thing that has been crucial is helping students develop an action plan at the beginning of the semester that they continually update. And because they're all using a relatively standard format for an action plan, we provided a template, but actually all of the group ended up developing a slightly different format. But because the format is mostly similar, we can sit down in class. And our class is actually a hybrid model as well. So we're only meeting half time face to face and then the rest of the time online. So when we do sit down face to face with our students, we can look at their action plans and get a sense of where they're at and how they're moving forward. And so having the ability to get a really quick snapshot of how they're progressing, I think has been key to providing feedback to them and helping them manage their relationships with their clients. Is your action plan format something you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Oh, yeah, certainly. Okay, we can put that in the show notes. I think sometimes starting projects like this can be really challenging because you don't quite have an idea of how to get organized and seeing models of how to stay organized is always really helpful. And that relates back to the teachers making the transition to teaching hybrid, that there's this big psychological barrier to trying something new, but once they get started, it's not so bad. But you have to get through that initial thing. And it sounds like what you're doing there is making it a little bit easier in the same way that this document perhaps might help other people thinking of doing the same thing. Well, we certainly hope so. How have the faculty been reacting in terms of the tools they're seeing? Do they see the usefulness of some of these online tools? And what are some examples of the online tools that might be used? You mentioned the project in terms of the weather reports and so forth, but are there any particular online learning approaches that you're using that the faculty might not have considered before? Yes, we started from a very theoretical standpoint in this course. So we're just now getting into some of the nitty gritty of the actual tools that can be used in this environment. The faculty are reacting well. I think they are encouraged that they are receiving some support and getting some help. And just because these students are kind of helping them get started and even introducing them to, like I mentioned, some of the tools that already existed for faculty through instructional designers at our university, they're saying, oh, okay, there actually are templates to help me throughout this process. I can even online find something like a course design plan that helps me develop my material into a set of modules. And it's not that different from developing a syllabus, which most of them have done in the past. And so then they're seeing some things like students maybe introducing something. Most faculty are familiar with a discussion board, for instance, in an online course. However, they're not sure how students will be able to practice maybe speaking in the target language. And then they see something like Flipgrid, where 
where students could essentially post a video of themselves and they say, oh, okay, so students can do speaking practice outside of the classroom. That's not something that we would lose in using a hybrid model. VoiceThread would be another really great tool if you haven't explored that one yet. So I've recently heard about that on other podcasts, but I've yet to check it out myself. Flipgrid is very similar, I believe, to Voice VoiceThread. Thread. Yeah, I was thinking something like VoiceThread or Flipgrid would be a really good mm-hmm. online approach. Have they done any other direct interactions online with other native speakers, for example? Well, that's an interesting idea because that is actually something that many faculty members are already facilitating in their face-to-face courses. They are connecting learners to native speakers in various countries across the world, but that's typically on a at-choice basis. So maybe for extra credit or just for students that are highly motivated. So I think instructors are seeing that they're actually already using some techniques that could be more fully integrated into a hybrid course in a way that would be really beneficial for all students. So there's some really interesting literature about the benefits of that type of approach. Obviously, you run into issues especially because we're talking about at this level, lower level language courses. So these are Mm -hmm. students that would really be struggling to communicate at a very basic level. But there are some opportunities for them to connect to native speakers and countries that speak those languages um, that are really exciting and that tend to really motivate students to learn and engage in more extensive language learning like study abroad. One of the things we do in SUNY is we have something called COIL, which is Cooperative Online International Learning Program, where courses in the U.S. pair up with courses in other countries. In the Mm -hmm. U.S., most of those courses end up being taught in English because most SUNY students don't have as much of a background in foreign languages. But many of the partner schools are doing it primarily to help the students acquire English skills. And I was thinking if you were doing some upper level courses, something similar could work in the other direction, where if you had more advanced language students working with students on projects dealing with culture or cross-cultural comparisons might be an interesting sort of pairing. That would be phenomenal. So it's really unusual to hear about service learning at the master's level. And you mentioned that this was the first semester that you were doing the service learning component with this course. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and what motivated you to use this particular methodology? Yes. As I mentioned, I had the opportunity to participate in a service learning fellowship about a year ago. And I was initially looking at developing some service learning courses in our department for undergraduate students. And honestly, the idea came about as I was listening to my colleagues discuss some of their concerns about implementing a hybrid model in their courses. And so I knew that this technology and teaching second language course existed. And I knew that many actually of the teaching assistants in those foreign language classes were enrolled in the applied linguistics program. And so many of them took that course. And I thought, well, we have this group of students that's developing this knowledge. We have these faculty members who are needing some support and this type of knowledge. Why couldn't we just put these together? And so there were obvious gains, like you mentioned, Rebecca, in terms of the professional development for the master's level students to get some practical experience. So it seemed like a no-brainer to try and put those together. Related to that, in terms of a professional skill for graduate students, I can imagine mm-hmm. that it would be really easy for their clients to want this project to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and have crazy scope creep. How are you making sure that these projects don't get too big? That's exactly right. And we are facing that issue. And part of the problem is that because the faculty are not familiar 
with exactly what's involved in transitioning to a hybrid model, they don't sometimes know what they're asking for or how time-consuming certain tasks would be for the graduate students. I think that is one of the great outcomes of the course, that the students are having to learn how to negotiate that with a client. These are our faculty members in our department. They are clients, but the students are having to say, wow, that sounds like a great idea. I think what we could definitely do for you this semester might look a little bit more like this, which is a bit more narrow in scope. But our goal would be to provide something that's really helpful to you, but we may not be able to accomplish all of that this semester, which is challenging in terms of professional communication. But I think one of the really important aspects of that is making sure that our students know how much we expect of them in terms of that they are well-informed about how much time they should be spending on this type of task. And that is something that we're having to continually negotiate. And we have seen some students take on too much, and they have had to go back and say, okay, we may not be able to do quite that much. Or they've met with an e-learning course designer who's accustomed to working with faculty on a really tight deadline. And so they said, okay, why don't you go work on this piece? Let's meet again next week. And you have this big chunk of work done. And the students aren't only doing the service learning project. They also have coursework related to this course. And so they've had to say to the instructional designer, actually, could we meet in two weeks instead? So they're figuring out some of those professional communication and time management issues and managing the scope of their own projects, which has been highly beneficial. But there has been a lot of back and forth negotiation. And that is something that my co-instructor and I are observing. And as we look at those action plans, that's something we're talking about. Are you biting off more than you can chew? And how can we figure out how to integrate what you're already doing in the course into the deliverable for your client to make sure that we're not overwhelming our students with too much? I can imagine that in this situation, having a co-teacher could be really helpful to bounce ideas off of each other. But that also is another layer of complexity. I'm wondering how you're also managing that to make sure that your collaboration with Stephanie is also running smoothly. Yes. So she's at a disadvantage because she's not here to speak for herself. So I'll speak for both of us. But I think it's going quite smoothly. I wasn't sure what that would look like initially. We've never worked together in this capacity before, and I've never co-taught a course before. So I had no idea what that would look like. However, because this is a hybrid course and a lot of what we do face-to-face is more in a workshop type setting, I think the co-instructor model works quite well because we're not really lecturing to the students or there's not a concern about making sure that we're on the same page because she and I can have lots of those discussions between the two of us as we prepare content that will be put online, things like that, developing rubric, those kinds of issues. So I would say one issue, for instance, that came up is even ensuring that we're both interpreting a rubric that we're using the same way because we take turns maybe grading certain types of assignments. So wanting to be consistent in the implementation of those rubrics. But because a lot of that communication is happening via email or over Blackboard, then we can see how the other person is responding to those types of issues. And so anything where it seems like we're not on the same page, it's been pretty simple to iron out outside of that face-to-face environment. But it's honestly been much smoother than I thought it might be. Stephanie is fantastic to work with, but I really thought, I'm not sure what this will look like, but it's been easier than, than I thought it might be. Sounds to me like in some ways you end up learning a lot more about your colleagues and how they grade and what they value by co-teaching with them. And then at the same time, in 
this particular situation, you've got two people to put out fires. <laughs> exactly. And I think that at first, maybe the students weren't sure what to make of having two instructors, that they weren't sure whom to go with, with concerns and things like that. But as I mentioned, if we're having these conversations over email, then they just copy both of us and whoever responds first. Then the students, I think, seem to like that model because they, <laughs> they probably tend to get a response a bit quicker than if it were just one of us. Mm -hmm. And then also, I do think we develop our own areas of focus. So I am more leaning towards management of the service learning project. And Stephanie is most familiar with the content of the course. So while we both speak into both of those things, we kind of have our areas of expertise. How many students are working with each instructor? How big are the groups? So the groups are different sizes. Our smallest is two people. So actually, we have two groups of two that are working in different environments. And I will say one other unique thing about this course is that our group of students is highly diverse. So we have lots of international students in the Applied Linguistics program. So they speak lots of different languages. That's a great advantage because as they work on the materials for these different foreign language classes, they may have a great deal of knowledge about that language. That also spoke into how we divided those groups up. We do have a couple of groups. For instance, we have two students who are helping develop materials for a German class, and neither one of those students speaks German, but they've had great success in the instructional design component. So that's another challenge that has arisen in this particular context. But then we have another group of four students who's working on a project. And so you asked earlier about GOAT. The size of the group and how many people are contributing also influences how great the scope of what they can take on is. What benefits do your students get from this type of class format, the service learning and the hybrid nature that they might not have received in a more traditional class setting? I think one of the greatest benefits that they are getting out of this setting is in working directly with a faculty member who intends to actually implement these materials with students is that they are getting a sense of materials design that's not only evidence-based, but constrained by the real-world environment. The students in our applied linguistics program tend to get lots of wonderful information and lots of great ideas about best practices for teaching a language, but they may struggle with gaining a sense of how to implement that in only a 50-minute face-to-face class. So those are some of the real-world constraints that are ironed out as they work with a faculty member who has tons of experience working with real students in the real classroom. So if a student designs this activity that's elaborate and meaningful, evidence-based and wonderful, but it would be way too time-consuming for students to actually accomplish, or maybe it would be too advanced for students at this level, which graduate students may not have a clear sense of exactly what that would look like, then the faculty member is saying, I don't think my students could do that, or this would take way too much time. So it's building in an awareness of some real-world constraints that may not be so evident to our graduate students otherwise. And then additionally, as we mentioned earlier, they're developing some of those professional skills that they would never otherwise be able to develop. They're working on communicating with a client. They're working together in a group. They are negotiating roles, all different kinds of things that we tend to face when we enter the workforce in general. Great. One thing that I really love about 
service learning is the emphasis on civic engagement and the awareness of diversity and different types of issues that come up in the real world. And I think that it's interesting to see how our students are becoming more sensitive to the different types of students that we have at Texas Tech University and their different experiences of the college classroom, their different experiences of technology, their different access to resources. So I'm excited to see how in this service learning environment, students are becoming more aware of who student populations really are and some of the diverse challenges that face those student populations. I think that sort of awareness raising is really exciting. And then additionally, I like the idea that students will be graduating and entering the workforce with this idea of cooperation because they're working together as a group and they're working with all of these faculty members as opposed to moving into an educational environment where we often have a tendency to work in a silo. They have some experience bridging those gaps and reaching across the aisle and saying, okay, what are you doing here? How can we use those strategies in the areas that we're trying to operate? So I think they are walking away with a greater sense of cooperation that I hope they will carry into the institutions where they either continue their graduate work or are working as professionals. One thing we have to ask is about your podcast. What started you on the podcast? I see you've got a pretty big audience there in terms of the number of downloads for the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. I wanted to start a podcast because I love podcasts. I really enjoy listening to them. They are a big part of my personal learning. And they're one of those things that I find the more I listen, the more creative I feel that I'm just exposed to lots of different ideas. And I started looking around for English content that would be useful to some of my other students. I also teach English as a second language, mostly for graduate international students who will be teaching in their various content areas, but using English as the mode of instruction. And so what I realized is that obviously tons of podcasts in English, but some of them are pretty, well, they're definitely designed for native speakers. So there's no support for language learning or they're designed for people who are very early language learners. So just focusing on lots of vocabulary building. So I noticed that there was a bit of a gap there in terms of something that was designed for intermediate or advanced speakers of English, but with just a little support for language learning. So I thought, let's just create it. Let's try it out. So that's what we did. And I think like these projects that we're describing, the exciting thing about something like a podcast is that you really can dive in with not a lot of experience or complicated resources. So most of the episodes that we have on the podcast are recorded on my iPhone. And I've had family members on the podcast. We've had different individuals from around the university. And the students in my classroom have responded well. I've been able to take some of the content that we were developing for that podcast and use it in my classroom, which is always exciting when you can get double use of any project that you're working on. And we have seen a positive response internationally where it seems like people all over the globe are excited to have this type of content. So it's height. We had a good number of people listening in Benin, in Africa. And I have no idea how they found out about it, but we had quite a following there for a while. And I've taken a bit of a break in producing content as I've focused on some other projects, but I have been looking into how I can make use of some other resources on campus in terms of maybe having an intern or developing some type of service learning course where students could help me, especially on the technical side, because I don't mind talking, I don't mind conducting an interview, but the editing is 
more time consuming than I would like. So we have yeah. noticed that too. It's remarkable. Yeah. Your podcast seems like a great resource for graduate students because you deal with a lot of topics like how to understand slang or Texas accents, for example, and similar topics mm-hmm. that for grad students who've learned English formally in their countries, coming to a new institution, coming to a new country, it might be helpful for them to fill in some of the gaps that might not otherwise have been done in their instruction. I was really impressed by it. Well, thank you. What also seems nice about a podcast is that if it's a gap in their knowledge, but they don't want people to know that it's a gap in their knowledge, you can listen to a podcast without anyone really knowing. So (laughs) you can fill those gaps easily. You could be listening to it at the gym, while driving, while walking, or when you're sitting at home. That's exactly right. We normally ask, as the last question, what are you going to do next? Oh, well, that's a great question. So I've mentioned that on a personal level, I'm expecting a baby soon. So that has taken up lots of headspace in terms of what I'll be doing next. I'm not sure how my personal life will be changing, but professionally, I'm definitely interested in continuing to examine ways that service learning can be used in the classroom. So I would love to see in my ESL courses, English as a Second Language courses, see ways that international graduate students can be contributing meaningful service to our community while learning English. And I could see lots of amazing ways that that could take place. Our international students on campus are usually here because they are so bright. They have a lot to contribute to scholarship and research in general. But oftentimes, as they struggle to communicate in English at the same level as a native speaker, they're often underestimated. So I think if we could look at ways of incorporating service learning courses where students were learning English and then contributing some of the things they are really great at doing, it would have a wonderful impact on our university, our community, and international students. So that's one thing I would like to look at developing and certainly getting back into the podcast game. So as I mentioned, I haven't produced new content in a while, so I would really like to to get back into that, to come up with some new ideas for how we can contribute to English learners all across the globe. Well, it sounds like we have two different things that we'll have to have you back on to talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. Well, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's really great hearing about what you're up to and and how it's coming along. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I have really enjoyed listening to your podcast. I found the episode on online teaching, especially relevant to things that I'm working on and thinking about these days. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.